Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Dr. Malte, can you tell us a little bit about your journey in healthcare as well as your contributions to the space? Well, yeah, thank you. Um, the um, I've been a heart surgeon for now over a decade. Um, I'm French Canadian in origin. I've been uh, trained in Montreal, then moved to uh, uh, Nashville after training to uh, help uh, grow a heart transplant program, uh, which was my uh, specialty. And then uh, was fortunate enough to be recruited to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, where um, there I continued to uh, treat patients with heart transplant and uh, mechanical support. Also uh, uh, did some robotic surgery as well there. So very fortunate to be, uh, to be able to do that. Helped a lot of patients. Um, also have a special interest for research. Um, published, uh, you know, uh, uh, papers in the, in the field related to uh, heart surgery and clinical research. Um, and then most recently, uh, I guess it's over the last two years, really a special interest into mental health and, um, and specifically in areas where um, people are functioning in high intensity environment, um, healthcare being one, and that, uh, that book is really focused on healthcare, but I'll also have a special uh, coaching life and health coaching in sort of advanced uh, environments where people have to perform and things are, um, and sort of being balanced with. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about your book? So I understand it's called Healthcare Anonymous. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, it started to, with a personal journey. Uh, myself went through personal and professional uh, challenges. And then uh, going through that and starting to talk to um, partners and colleagues uh, realized that I was not alone. And so one thing led to another, I decided to start writing. And so I got up uh, before work in the morning, wrote a little bit every day, and then asked, asked some collaborators to participate into sharing their journey. And uh, it took about a year and a half and it became uh, a book. And in the book, we really describe healthcare as a disease, basically, where we, and that's pretty unique, you know, being in an environment that you heal people, but also being in an environment that um, perhaps is making you sick. Um, mm. And so we describe how this uh, balance between uh, your workplace and the way you were trained and the way, and, and the, uh, so you have your, um, management of your schedule and the responsibilities that comes with it uh, is, is gradually chipping your personal life away in some, in some instances and, um, and leads to the main part of the book where um, we, we describe manifestation of the healthcare disease where uh, whether it's psychological, behavioral, physical even, mm-hmm. um, uh, it could be depression, it could be burnout, it could be physical expression of, of, of stress where uh, people share their experiences. Now, at the end of the book, we, like any healthcare uh, problem or diseases, we uh, our group or my book proposes a recovery program 
uh, how, you know, it starts with me, of course, but how this has helped, how did I sort of work towards myself to make it better? Right. So when you talk about this recovery program, what can you share with our listeners who are perhaps feeling the burden of a workplace that doesn't prioritize wellness, particularly the healthcare environment, as you mentioned, right? There's high levels of burnout. So for those individuals who are seeking recovery, what are some insights that you can share? Yeah, the, uh, well, uh, it starts with a, it's a, I propose a five-step program and, mm. you know, whether you want to follow that or not, that's, that's okay. <laughs> but the right. first step is to, for me, it, it was really to take a pause and take a step back. And because, you know, the, what your life in general is a rat race, there's family, there's finances, there's work. Um, there's always more work in healthcare, like a lot of other professions. And so it's really to take a pause. And, um, and for me, it's to, it wasn't, but it was an extended pause to personally sort of get back to my own values and what was important for me, uh, but to slow things down. And, uh, and, and then what I mean that is, is maybe assessing what are your priorities in the work? Why are you doing that job? And what makes you happy or not? What percentage of your life is work taking? And you know, for me, it was, it was traveling, you know, 30,000 a mile a year to give presentations. It was from being there from six o'clock to eight for patients. You know, you can see how it doesn't leave, leave much place for anything else. So that was the first step. And then um, realizing that we're just human, right? Especially within this pandemic, unfortunately, there's a lot of suffering out there. And um, realizing that, uh, I mean, for me, is I wasn't God and I couldn't play God. And then there are things that I do the best of my ability and ultimately patients it won't do it, you know, and, and that's a hard time to, uh, that's difficult to sort of uh, go through, but establishing those priorities is important. And I guess without selling all this, the scoops, the third, my third, probably um, best advice <clears throat> would be to uh, start, you know, talking about it and feeling it. And uh, mm. when I talk about this, I talk about em- empathy and because um, you get to at some point being just in a system where you just work and lack of empathy uh, at different levels, uh, you know, whether it's uh, not wanting to spend some time with families or building this uh, armor around yourself where, you know, it phase, nothing phases you mm-hmm. uh, is, is an initial sign, in my opinion, of burnout and um, when you stop caring. And so mm. um, sort of maybe reminding, reminding yourself why you're in this sort of uh, environment and then, and, then, and then where you're at in that sort of spectrum of empathy. And, and to me, that was, uh, that was a revelation because patients were, um, and the disease patients were a room number. Um, mm. I was getting through my days without getting to know them necessarily. Um, and, and slowing down and realizing that that was an important point for me was a key to my, to my recovery and, and a lot of other collaborators in the book. Absolutely. I think this idea of building armor around ourselves can be a telltale sign that you might be on the cusp of burnout. As you mentioned, you, you stop caring, right? And there's that lack of empathy and you're kind of just going, I guess, through autopilot. And that's, that's a really interesting sign. 
Curious to know, you kind of mentioned this already, but we hear about North Americans having access to sick care systems, not health care systems. So would you agree with this distinction and, and how would you describe that? Yeah, it's a it's it's a complicated one. Um, you know, I've worked in two different systems, both the North the uh, Canadian system and, and U.S. systems, mm-hmm. very different from a payer from a global sort of reimbursement standpoint. Um, I'd say now a lot of the when you say sick system evolves around um, making. Uh, the bottom line. And I think, and I think while it's not obvious out there, always, we always do it in a, in the most altruistic uh, way. We're there to help patients. We're also, there's a big wave of sort of, um, uh, there's a big wave of, of whatever you make, whatever, whether you make the bottom line or not, and whether the plus and minuses add up. And so it's seeing more patients, it's seeing patients in multiple hospitals, it's uh, sometimes, you know, being dictated, and I think I know that's state dependent, but being di- dictated by um, by a uh, by a payer um, who is going to do the operation, where is going to be the operation, what's the extent of the operation or the service you're going to provide. So to me, to me, that that is a significant issue, and it gets over the last ten to fifteen years, and we discussed this a little bit in the book. Uh, the system has changed to be. And for the better or worse, I think, but uh, used to be run by physicians and clinicians a lot and, and, and nurses. Now the system has changed to be um, run by administrators and, um, and perhaps policies and, and perhaps, you know, C-suite uh, executives. So, which sometimes physicians are part of, sometimes uh, are not. And so that is a that is to me, that puts another layer of things um, for any healthcare worker, whether it's for physicians or nurses, because it adds a layer of documentation, it adds a layer of computer work, of mm-hmm. um, HR related sort of issues. And I think those things are important, but I think maybe because of, of, of 20 years ago, so, sort of um, uh issues now we swing the other way a little bit to really focus on the money on the bottom line on the hyper reporting of of issues within the system and so you constantly feel like you're in a um, battle between doing enough but not sort of being burned out or um, or doing enough and not being reported and so there's mm-hmm. a lot of sort of this uh, what do, the legal sort of practice of medicine that I think is mm-hmm is endemic to uh to the system which which makes it hard to work with right so what i'm hearing is a lot of red tape and bureaucracy and doctors not being able to necessarily focus on treating patients so much as avoiding potential legal issues and kind of getting swamped in the administrative side of things which ultimately i can see how that contributes to burnout particularly in um in that role. So what advice would you have for hospitals and any other healthcare environments that might be wanting to tackle burnout and improve workplace culture? Uh, yeah, thank you. That's a good question. I think the, uh, the and, and we have a, uh, a uh, also a program that we're developing for, for mm-hmm. systems to, uh, to address that. But I think it's realizing that Whenever there is a, a um, 
presentation of a problem, whether it's burnout, whether it's the culture of the environment, whether it's, you know, a physical issue, it's the end result of something. It's not an acute problem that, you know, perhaps resources can deal with because hospitals have systems usually, mm -hmm. uh, most of them to say, okay, well, I have a problem that I'm going to go to this program or wellness program and, and things get better so I can get checked off and be better back to work. But it's more than that, because if we treat, if we keep putting band-aids on problems, mm. then it, it will repeat itself and, and it puts, it transfers the anxiety and the stress to the healthcare workers. Um, I think where systems would improve upon would be to uh, establish a system for where they continuously or on a prospective basis, evaluate those issues, whether people are happy with work, whether they take time for themselves, whether they have appropriate areas for, you know, uh, activity, meditation, gratitude, and that could be done at work. Some of these tech companies are a bit more forward with that, um, mm -hmm. you know, having spaces or dedicated time for people to, to be, to be, uh, to be a bit healthier. And I think some hospitals are starting to do that, but having a formalized assessment of your workplace Sometimes it could be as simple as allowing people once a week to wear something different or, mm. you know, to have a forum for them to express in a non sort of reprimandable area uh, where they can where they can express some of these issues without fear of, of retaliation. So little things that help prospectively prevent the event where you mm -hmm. need acute help. And that needs to be there as well, but um, but some of these little things can really make a difference. Um, understanding your people, favoring communication as opposed to reporting uh, between folks, I think that's mm -hmm. another important area. And um, and yeah, that would be my my uh, being a bit more proactive in the system to recognize those issues. And sorry, I, I get on the things here, but um, mm -hmm. you know, you could. You could also imagine it could be even before that in training as a medical student, how can you sort of integrate these uh, check boxes to be better in the system? Right. Absolutely. I think there's some really great insights there. appreciate you sharing. One specific one that I, I would love to talk about is when we talk about communication versus sort of reprimanding individuals, right? So being really proactive in communicating. What are some examples that come up there or how can you expand on that point? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of level of communication, right? The way you communicate with your peers, the way you communicate with your bosses, with people you, um, you're the bosses from. And so the uh, having the ability to sort of have a um, open communication is critical and I in all aspects of it. And I just think about examples within my my practice. So people should feel the ability to speak up. It wasn't always uh, that sort of open minded. Let's mm -hmm. put it like that to uh, to uh, criticism or or other people that tell me what to do uh, <laughs> right. way better way better now uh, but I realized over time that the ability for people to speak up is really improving efficiency and decreases mistake and it empowers everybody to feel better about a process uh, because as a maybe the captain of the boat during an operation or during a selection committee um, you are 
responsible for making decisions, but they should be based on everybody's ability to speak up. And if you in fear this, um, this sense that people can't speak about their professional abilities, then it really uh, uh, puts a really a big damp on professional satisfaction on uh, workplace sort of satisfaction. And it, it does have an impact on your leadership and on the turnover. And having an ability to sort of mitigate that, those things is, to me, I think is, is the key. And so being able to sit down and talk about important things on a regular basis, on a scheduled basis, and, and having um, other people uh, have the ability to speak up is, is, to me, a critical portion of it. So That's great. And I think just to piggyback off of your last sentence, you know, having having people on your team be able to speak up. So let's say there's some leaders who feel that they're not hearing enough from their team and they might not be sure why. Are there examples or remedies there that you think leaders can do to kind of get their team to speak up? And how do we get people comfortable owning their voice and um, really sharing their full professional capability, as you mentioned? Yeah, um, a couple of things. Of course, it, it could be an entire podcast about it, but uh, <laughs> right. I, I think uh, one simple things for me was to learn people's name. You know, mm-hmm. um, that seems simple. Their first name, and uh, and not for the sake of it, but for the sake of having them feel like they're part of the team. I mean, the the craziest thing, and and I I was you know guilty myself is to work with people. 10 hours a day, you know, for five years or 20 years, you know, even, and then not know their name. Really. Oh, wow. You know, that, that is a, uh, that is an important part of being part of a team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know from my specific field of heart surgery and other situations where, you know, people lose a patient or things is really being part of a debriefing, um, you know, understanding what people went through, what are some of the issues how can we make things better as a team? That that to me has become one of the centerpiece of of uh, of my practice in mm-hmm. in every aspects, and I feel like it's been very powerful into empowering the team. Um, there's nothing like a quarterback type leadership, right? So uh, having the ability to play more like a team player as a leader and understanding what type of leadership works for your environment, mm-hmm. I think is critical. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, avoiding the top-down decisions, favoring uh, consensus-driven decisions. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that working at the Mayo Clinic, uh, Mayo Clinic was great about, making sure that there was a consensus decision among people, whether it's for hiring, policies, decision-making, and I think that is really powerful because then you really get people on board with a specific project. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the, worst, the worst for, I think, an, an, an employer or a leader is to, is to have uh, people feel like it's a top-down relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's okay as long as things work, but the minute it doesn't, then that relationship is fragmented and it becomes really hard to understand what people feel at the battleground level you know oh yeah lack of better words because uh especially during covid there was not there was a number of situations where you know what the administration and the hospital wanted was different from what was 
happening on the ground, people dealing with resources issues and mm. scheduling issues and um, uh, uh, you know sleep issues and things. And so understanding that there's, uh, there's this has to be this bi-directional relationship is important. Absolutely. I can see how a lot of the times, as you mentioned, when things are working well, maybe the top-down approach, people don't have too much to say about it. But the moment things aren't working, I think, you know, there's all, all this buildup um, that just kind of erupts. So it's really important to be proactive about that consensus-driven decision-making, as you mentioned, in teams. Thinking and over- the eruption, sorry, the eruption oh, is, yeah. is, is the symptom. It's not the, it's, it's the, it's like when you, uh, you know, when you have cancer or we have heart disease, it's because maybe you have family history of you smoked all your life or you're a diabetic, you know, or, or you've been exposed to radiation or something, but um, you know, the end result when it manifests itself, whether it's a crisis, whether it's people quitting, whether it's uh, mm-hmm. turnover, it's the end result of a process of a disease before and understanding that process is the key to maybe not eliminating eruptions, like you said, but making, mm-hmm. making it a bit sort of a less of a big volcano, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Whatever we can do to land a little smoothly, a bit more smoothly is, is important. So being proactive, I think is a great message Looking back at your career, what would you say has been the most impactful advice that you've received and that you'd like to pass on? Um, you know, I think one of the advice and, and I've had advices and bad examples, but and then good advice from bad examples. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. One of them is very specific to my career, but it was to... Um, if, if, if you do something for the patient that is genuinely the right, in, in your mind, the right thing to do, you can never be wrong because a lot of times there's a decision to make. So if you, if you do generally things that, um, that, uh, that is done for the right reasons, um, mm-hmm. the patient, the, your coworkers will see it as a positive sum game. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that time, sometimes that's, uh, that's a hard one because there's all kinds of factors that play into a decision, um, but ultimately that simplifies it uh, quite a bit. Um, it's, uh, and then I guess the other one that I, would, I heard more recently that I thought was a good analogy is it's not a, um, for any career that, that is, you know, whether you're in professional sports or business or musician, uh, life is not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a marathon, right? Yeah. And, and so for me, a lot of times it felt like a sprint. Uh, you know, it was to publish the most papers, be on every single podium, be the busiest surgeon in the world and and work at the most prestigious institution in the world. And ultimately, nobody brings their CV to their funeral, right? Exactly. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah. it's about the people that love you, the people that you love and, and how you make people feel. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so that is, is being lost a little bit and it's not necessarily always on the individual it's on the system and on the culture, mm-hmm. you know, it was always in training, how many cases you could be on, how many hours you could be up. Um, I mean, you look on TV, the culture portrays these sort of superhuman doctors, mm-hmm. 
whether you watched a resident, uh, ER, or any of those, have you ever seen a heart surgeon in those in those episodes? Right. That is a genuinely nice guy. I mean, it's <laughs> they're all like superhuman, sort of angry people. <laughs> and, then, and then you accept you you expect people to work in this environment and be any different. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so and so looking up. Looking back, I think maybe, you know, recognizing that perhaps personalities are better fitted for for certain types of, of profession. I love what I do. Don't get me wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. But maybe I mean, I was kept my personality was really thrown into heart surgery. I mean, that's the only mm-hmm. thing that, you know, it was the, the I was going to go to the best you know profession I could be in. And, and sometimes, uh, and sometimes if I reflect, I, I have a certain now, you know, interest for other things and I'm in a different stage in my life. And so mm-hmm. maybe there's things that I could have done that would have been a better sort of use of my talent, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and so maybe early on in training, um, having better guidance, uh, to students or to nurses and to what area they would, they would probably fit best. Um, and then reassessing that continuously. Sorry, I diverge on your question here, but mm-hmm. um, being able to sort of at a lot of uh, times in your career, take pauses and checkpoints to say, okay, is this mm-hmm. happy? And, um, and if it doesn't, well, it, sometimes a solution is, and the answer is usually pretty easy. Uh, for me, it was anyway. I still practice <laughs> archery, but in yeah. a much different way, you know? <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point is to have these checkpoints and pauses and reassess because life is long and your career journey is long. So to kind of tie it back to what you were saying initially, we hear about, you know, life is not a sprint, it's a marathon, but in order to really practice that in your career, it's really integral to take pauses, but to ask yourself the right questions, right? So that question would be, am I happy with what I'm doing? Am I making the impact that I want to make? Does my life look the way that it want to, that I want it to look like, right? Because a big part of the reason why we do the work that we do is to design the life that we want. Um, And those are questions that nobody necessarily taps us on the shoulder and asks us. So it's really on us to ask those questions. But um, to your point, having maybe some mentors or coaches or individuals in the industry that can, you know, pass that on to more junior team members and get them into the practice of really doing that reflection can be such a game changer for so many individuals in the workforce. And it's not an easy, uh, it's not a very, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say powerful, but it's not a cool thing to pass on. You know, you pass on a technique, mm-hmm. you pass on knowledge, but passing on this ability to be happy and this ability to, I call it in the book, virus scan yourself with no attended on the virus and thing, but right. virus scan yourself and, and being able to recognize the symptoms of the disease and say, okay, now if I, if I feel like my mind's racing, I can't sleep. If I feel like I'm eating off the corner of a, of a desk all the time, because mm-hmm. my time, maybe it's time to start saying no to some things and uh, saying no is actually not easy, but it's, it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> Once you get into the habit, right? <laughs> it's fun. Or, you know, there's all yeah. kinds of ways of saying it. Say, you know, you can say, well, let me just assess what, because I used to say yes all the time. I mean, mm. I say, yeah, I can do this presentation. Yeah, I can do this other case. Yes, I can do this. And sometimes you need to, but but a lot of times you don't need to give an immediate answer and uh, mm-hmm. take a step back. And it, it feels great when, and people will 
won't resent you when uh, when you, you you know you know you can say no and then you can provide a service that's well accomplished uh, more than saying yes to everything and 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 then sort of down the road getting the bucket of either bad outcomes or or sort of an extended pause because you you know you can't manage it anymore. Definitely. I think that discernment is so important and it's difficult for a lot of people who want to please and who want to be mindful of their relationships, right? So um, definitely being able to say no and reap the rewards of that and be able to focus and create better outcomes. People will, in the long term, generally appreciate that. Absolutely. I fully support that. Great. Well, last question for you, Dr. Malte. So what keeps, what, what keeps you motivated in your day to day? Well, it's a, it's a, I'm a motivated person at the start. If I get excited mm-hmm. about something, uh, I get all in. So I'm not just sort of talking or thinking about getting into healthcare, mental illness. I'm writing a book about it. I'll be, mm-hmm. uh, I wanna, and that's part of the personality too, but um, keeps me motivated is is to me has been always the patience, seeing the reward and seeing and giving the best of my ability in the best mind state I can. Um, wasn't always like that, but I can say now that the patients that I treat are getting the best out of Simon. You know, right? And, uh, and it wasn't always like that. It was it, it used to be more of a you know factory than a, than a really sort of individualized treatment, and that keeps me seeing, you know, families and, and sort of the results of that is, is really keep, keeps me motivated. Um, I would say that uh, the hope of, you know, spreading a word out there is, is keeping me motivated. I, I think, especially now for a lot of areas, mental illness is getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, and I feel like uh, it's, it's, we need to act upon it if we want to, if we want to do it right, because if we just keep, as I said earlier, patching it with band-aids, I think it, um, we're, we're going to face a, a major problem, especially after what we've been um, facing over the last two years. I think we're kicking the bucket down the road of, of issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think if we start a movement of speaking up about it, not just to speak up about it, but then making actions towards mm-hmm. it, um, I feel like we, uh, we can really make a change. Love that. Love that. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I would, some of the things that I, I would like to mention is, um, you know, we do have a book, but we also have a, a site that people can go to if they want to learn more about the, the, uh, the book. It's called healthcareanonymous.com. Um, I think people, uh, people will see that, uh, again, the message is a, is a, um, is a one that hopefully will bring some hope to the system at this point. Appreciate you sharing that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Career Catharsis podcast. It would mean the world to me if you shared this episode with somebody that you know to inspire someone to take the next step in their career. Send me your feedback at coach.neha.coram at gmail.com. Connect with me on Instagram at coach.neha or find me on LinkedIn. Simply type my name, Neha Koram, and you'll find me. Looking forward to connecting and see you next time.